Our Father, your word tells us that every word that we have just read is God-breathed. It is not man-made. It has not come about by any prophet's own interpretation. It has its origin in you by your spirit. And we pray that we would uh, reverence your word in that regard and consider it carefully in our hearts just now. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, have you ever met a Christian who was bold and relentless in their evangelism? Can you think of any? Does anyone come to mind? Maybe it's someone you knew in the past, maybe someone that you know now. Uh, I can think of two right off the bat. One I met while I was at uni when I wasn't a Christian and first thinking about Christian things, reading the Bible, trying to have someone explain it to me so I understand it. And there was one guy who was pointed, probably too strong a word to use about his evangelism, but he was not afraid of talking about Jesus. He was very direct about it, about applying it to my heart and saying, like, you need to change, you need to believe this. You know, what if you get knocked down by a bus on your way home? Uh, the second person I can think of is a person who used to be a member of this church, but has moved on to another one to be a part of our revitalization work. And I remember going for coffee with him here in the city, and we'd just order, as you would, you know, can I have a flat white, uh, and can I have a caramel shortbread, please? And he would order something similar, but say, have you ever heard about this guy, Jesus? And he would just be right in there. Now, I wonder how that kind of thing makes you feel. I wonder if you know a person like that and have been with people like that as they've evangelized. You know, both these guys I'm thinking of were so bold, it was almost uncomfortable. But what was striking was that they were rejected many times and yet never, ever deterred. What is it that makes Christians like that? What is it about them that should make us actually not be uncomfortable about it, but aspire to be more like them? Well, I think the answers in this passage we're looking at here. We're jumping into the middle of an argument, really. We're in uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. We've already seen from chapters 1 and 2 that Paul's trying to correct some mistaken opinions in the Corinthian church, opinions they've held against him. Opinions that have been kind of sown influentially by these poisonous false teachers. He's been criticized for changing his plans. He's vacillating, they say. He's not led by God. Paul then responds in chapters 1 and 2 with, he sounds a little bit like Brian Adams, you know, everything I do, I do it for you. That works for the older folks, maybe not for the, young, uh, for the, for the younger folks. Anyway, here in chapters 3 to 6, though, there's this great and glorious argument where Paul is talking about gospel ministry to say what it is, of course, but mainly to reaffirm that he is the genuine article. What's he said? He said, it looks weak, but it works. Look at what it's done in you. I'm not much, but God makes me competent. He said, it doesn't look like much, but actually, like we saw last week, this ministry is even more glorious than Moses' old covenant ministry. It's an astonishing thing to say. Well, here in chapter 3, verses 12 through to 4, 6, Paul moves from talking about this, the glory of this ministry to talking more about the effect of it. 
why he is bold, why he's relentless in this. And there are two main points that we're going to consider tonight. First of all, in verses 12 to 18, we don't hold back in gospel ministry. We are bold. Now, verse 12 says, we are very bold. It's linked with a therefore, linking back to what was just already said about the glory of the ministry. And he says, we are bold because essentially gospel ministry helps people see the glory of Christ. People are prevented from seeing it, of course, the way they were prevented from seeing it in Moses' day, even as verse 13 suggests for us. Paul's talking here about Moses again. And he's talking about this veil again in it, that we looked at last week in Exodus 34, 29 to 35. And remember that Moses effectively kept a veil in his pocket to wear, much the same way that you're all wearing a face mask right now. You know, he wore it when he was with the Israelites, but he took it off when he turned to go into the presence of God. Uh, he wore it to protect the people, uh, not from a virus, but from this display of God's glory, uh, from God's reflected glory, which was way more dangerous than the virus. And the Israelites knew just that. That's why the people in Exodus were so afraid. But there's another veil, isn't there, in this passage? Verse 15, there's a veil over their hearts. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Now, Paul is talking here about unbelief. And such unbelief prevented those who read God's old covenant word from seeing his glory. But not anymore, according to Paul. In new covenant ministry, this veil, this veil that blinds and stops people from seeing has been taken away. People are now in new covenant ministry helped to see. They're like babies born with congenital cataracts. Uh, you know, for hundreds of years, little kids were born blind and unable to see with this condition, but developments in eye surgery over recent years have changed all that. Surgeons now have the power to help kids see, to look into the face of their parents. And gospel ministry, Paul says, is effectively like that. Paul says to those who are born spiritually blind, we proclaim our glorious Christ. And by the Holy Spirit's supernatural work, hearts and minds are unveiled. People are made able to see, and people do, as verse 16 says. They turn to the Lord. What a picture of repentance that is. And with this repentance, with these new eyes to look on that which they might otherwise have been afraid of, the glory of God, now comes this freedom to look, to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ without fear of death, for Christ has taken our condemnation away. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, in a sense, it means that if we're on the receiving end of bold ministry, where maybe fellow members or elders speak the truth and love into our lives, it means that we're kind of happy recipients of such boldness, bold love, if you like. 
We must reject overbearing, controlling, or unbiblical forms of boldness. That only causes wounds. But receive bold love that heals our wounds when it's done in humility and points to Christ. Maybe if we're the ones who are, if we're doing ministry in some way, a ministry that proclaims God's words, whether it's pastoral or leadership-based or through small group or Sunday school, the encouragement in here is that we, we have no need to be shy about the gospel that we proclaim and hold out to the people in our groups, in our care, who hear. We have every reason to be bold. We're helping people see. And the same applies even when we're hosting people around our dinner tables again in evangelism. You know, we can talk about Christ and be bold and be unashamed in doing so. We're helping people see. I wonder if you remember when the veil was lifted from your eyes. When did you first see the glory of Christ for what it truly is? When did you see him and it became something different to a story that someone else told and all of a sudden it just became real and personal and freeing? Well, reflect on how bold people were in sharing the gospel with us and how God used them to lift the veil from us and follow their example. This text, of course, says something to those of us who are not Christians, whether you're watching from home or here. You may think that you see everything clearly in this world, but this passage says something really quite shocking to you. I wonder if you've grasped that. It actually says you're blind. That's really bold in itself. You might know you're blind. You might not know you're blind, but you think you're you maybe think your sin is too bad for God to deal with. I want you to pay close attention to what verse 16 says, because it doesn't say when good people turn to the Lord. It says the word anyone. When anyone turns to the Lord, no matter who you are or what you've done, anyone can turn. Indeed, if the apostle Paul can, the man who killed Christians prior to his own conversion, if he can, we can. So new covenant believers don't hold back. We're bold because this ministry, this new covenant ministry that we're given in the spirit helps people see the glory of Christ. But also we're bold because this ministry helps people change into the likeness of Christ. See, it affects both salvation and sanctification. And this is what verse 18 is all about. It's all about transformation. Uh, a few years ago, the Garveys went to the Science Museum in Glasgow, and there was this really cool uh, photomorphing booth that takes your image and changes it into the image of another person. So I sat in one seat and my son sat in the other, and you press the button, and then I watched the screen as my image slowly but surely, over a period of a minute, just morphed into the image of my son. It was very cool, good tech. But now, according to verse 18, though, this, that kind of thing happens, spiritually speaking, when we contemplate, when we behold the glory of Christ. Look at it with me, verse 18. We all, so Paul's not just talking about people who are doing ministry just now, he's talking about everybody, everybody. We all, who with unveiled faces, 
contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So under the old covenant, people were not free to look. But now, because in Christ the veil is taken away, we're free to look, free to gaze on the glory of the eternal Son of God, second person of the Trinity, and be filled with love. Free to see the incomparable beauty of his holy, sin-free, compassionate life and be filled with awe. Free to look upon that glorious cross and to be filled with deep sorrow over serious conviction. And free to see the glory of his resurrection and be filled with gladness and hope. Free indeed to behold the glory of every aspect of his person and work and to not only be filled with longing that says, I want to be like him, but reminded of the promise in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that not only will you one day be like him, but on the journey, gradually, bit by bit, through the aggregation of marginal gains, transformed into his likeness. So we don't get to just see glory. Little by little, bit by bit, we get to become glorious. Isn't that incredible? Let that sink in. Maybe you're a practical thinker. Immediately you're like, how? How do we do this? How do we behold the glory of Christ? Well, we study the scriptures that testify about him. We make every effort to hear this word proclaimed. We speak it to each other for our building up. That's what a church family is for. We do all this with the Spirit's enabling help. God's Spirit-filled people gathering to study God's Spirit-inspired word is the best way that we behold his glory. Now, you might say, that doesn't sound very glorious to me. Well, consider what happens when we do. Maybe consider what's happened in the lives of those you know in this church family and how their lives have been changed so that we together can say with Paul, you know, I was once blind, but now I see. I was once fill in the gap, but now I fill in the glorious gap. This is why the Apostle Paul chooses to be so bold and has chosen to be so bold as to say, no, I'm changing my plans because it's better for you, and instead, I'm going to send you a letter that's really severe, that's really straight talking. But why wouldn't you do that? When this new covenant ministry, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, helps people see and helps people change. That's Paul's point. Now, this passage throws an obvious question at ministry leaders who say, well, I'm not sure I see much change going on in whatever area that I'm involved in. Well, maybe, maybe we are not being bold enough. Maybe we are holding back on the challenge of gospel living. I mean, Paul was super bold with this challenge. Why? Because it really meant an awful lot to his ministry. Was his reputation on the line? 
Paul already said in 1 Corinthians, he could not care one jot whether he was judged by them. All he cared about was being judged by God. And all he wanted to do was be bold with them in a way that meant that Christ's reputation would be upheld. And Christ would be glorified. And that they would be truly saved. So maybe we're not being bold enough and we need boldness. But maybe we just need a double dose of patience actually. Because this text essentially says to us that regeneration and sanctification are the Spirit's work. So as a rule, just keep going. Keep being bold. And be relentless in doing so. And to those of us who say, I guess like we all say, I don't see much change in me, personally. I struggle with the same things. I actually don't see much change in other people around me. They seem to struggle with the same things. Well, maybe we need to spend more time gazing on the glory of Christ. Didn't we do just that in our morning service this morning? <laughs> by reflecting on this great love that Jesus has for us, his bride. It's incredible. Reflect on those kind of things that fuel your affections and help you. It just reminds you how glorious the love, the kindness, the forgiveness, the mercy that Paul talks about in here, how it is. It's worth reflecting on. And maybe... If we're disheartened at the fact that we don't see an awful lot of change, don't forget the fact that it's a bit-by-bit bit transformation that takes place. I mean, just last Sunday when the Garveys were walking into church, we met a couple that we've not seen, obviously, for 15 months because of lockdowns. But they were like, wow, look at the size of your kids. They've sprouted. Well, of course they have. But we were like, oh, really? You know, it's kind of hard to notice when we're with them all the time, you know? But it's true, other people recognize the growth that we perhaps don't see. That's why being in community in a local church, whether in a small group, formally or informally actually, helps. I need you to help me see the things that I don't see and become easily discouraged by. We need each other to do that kind of thing. So that's point one. We do not hold back when it comes to gospel ministry. We're bold because this ministry helps people see the glory of Christ and helps people change into the likeness of Christ. But secondly, we don't lose heart either. This is verses one to six. We don't lose heart in gospel ministry. We proclaim. Look with me at verse one of chapter four. Since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Now, it's really easy to lose heart doing new covenant ministry when we're sharing the gospel with people, either in the hope that they might become Christians or become more like Christ, okay? And 2 Corinthians contains quite a list of things that would cause anyone to be discouraged or faint-hearted in ministry. Paul lists them a bunch of times. Even next week, you'll see as Ashley's preaching on the next section of chapter 4, all the different descriptions of what Paul's felt like in ministry. Crushed, hard-pressed, etc. But Paul has perhaps a greater reason. He saw this church, a church he planted, a church he loved, 
go off the gospel rails, despite all the teaching that he had given them, despite all the warnings that he had given them, they fell for the wolves in sheep's clothing. And that's the kind of thing that would make anyone look for greener grass, whether in method or occupation. But Paul's resolve is so strong. He's relentless. He refuses to lose heart. He says, we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart even if the ministry looks weak. And in this section, he zeroes in basically on two things that make it seem that way. You know, an unimpressive method. And mixed results. Yeah, those are things that will really discourage you. With regard to the method, he's talking about the proclamation of the gospel. And he's saying, you can read between the lines here, it doesn't look that impressive. That's why some of the preachers and churches resort to what verse 2 of chapter 4 calls the secret and the shameful ways of doing ministry. Ways that intend to deceive God's people through the distortion of God's word. That's what was happening back then in Corinth. Now, Paul's going to tackle, with, tackle these uh, super apostles, as he calls them, later in the book. But here is a wee side swipe at the false teachers. You know, they gloried in their own rhetoric, and they boasted in their ecstatic experiences and their superior knowledge. Well, if Paul's gospel was so glorious, why was he so average a communicator? You know, he mustn't be as gifted or as blessed by God. No, 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 not compared to us, they would have said. What did they do differently? Well, it's not hard to find out. You can read about this in the history books and actually through cross-referencing other books of the Bible. They dressed up the proclamation of a gospel, it wasn't a gospel at all, with Hellenistic rhetoric. You know, the Greek fancy preaching. And they tampered with the content too. And they would say, you know, we know how to run a church. But Paul effectively says, no, no, you know how to ruin a church. And the same tactics can be used today to, uh, well, change the way things are done, change the method to step away from proclamation. You know, you can make a church look impressive in a whole number of ways. You can get a pastor that looks cool and tells the right stories to build a talk around. You can get the right band with the right lighting and the right, create the right atmosphere. Some would say that would do it, you know. But that's not how you run a church. That's the kind of thing that Kent Hughes calls homiletical hocus pocus. But you know what's really annoying? It works <laughs> to put on or to gather a crowd. And it's disheartening for those who faithfully preach God's word and it's disheartening for church members in these other churches who sacrificially serve to make everything happen. But Paul won't do it. He says, we're not going to resort to that. Neither will we lose heart doing what God, by his mercy, has given us to do. He said, better to exercise a feeble-looking, faithful gospel ministry than to exercise one that just distorts God's word. One of these feeds your soul. The other is fish bait. Why do I use fish bait as an example? Fascinatingly, in the original Greek, that's what the word distortion means. It's the Greek word for fish bait, right? In other words, it looks like food to that wee fish swimming around, 
Look at this chance of providence right in front of me. A wee worm dangling on this hook. Dinner is served. Death is served, more like. And that's exactly what it's like for false teaching. It looks like food, but it doesn't deliver life. It only delivers death. So Paul's saying, we're not going to resort to those secret and shameful ways. We're going to keep doing what we are doing, even if it looks to you, Corinthians, unimpressive. But neither do we lose heart because the, gospel, the response to the gospel is mixed. In verse 3, Paul explains why more people don't respond to the gospel. It's because, and we know why, it's because that can make you lose heart when we're sharing the gospel with people, can't it? Well, it can make you lose heart unless you start to take account of some of the reasons the Bible gives for why that is the case. And here's one of those reasons in verses 3 and 4. And look with me at verse 3. Here's this veil again. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, in our previous point, this uh, veil covered minds and hearts and prevented people from seeing the glory of God. But here... It's veiling the gospel, the good news of Christ's death and resurrection. That's what's covered up. Though only it seems to this group, the perishing. Those who in their current state of unbelief will spend eternity in hell. Now, who's doing the veiling this time? Well, it's Satan. He is the God of this age that Paul mentions there. And Paul tells us this not to make us panic or to help make us freak out, but actually to just, not to discourage us, but to remind us to stay in the fight. It's a reminder for us that this world without Christ is not a neutral zone. Satan is an adversary. The last thing he wants is to have people in his dominion turn to Christ. That's why even as a defeated foe, and he is, he blinds the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the glory of God in Christ, change their minds, and turn repentance. They can, of course. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that those who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Colossians 1 tells us the same. God is in the business of transferring people from the dominion of darkness into the dominion of the son he loves through us and our work. So we don't need to lose heart or be discouraged. There's nothing wrong with the gospel or the method of delivery. On the contrary, we do not lose heart because through our speaking, the reality is God works powerfully, mightily to bring salvation to lost people. Simply knowing that, brothers and sisters, gives us real heart. So he says, don't, you know, in verses one to six, Paul basically injects the church in Corinth with some much needed confidence in this area of authentic gospel ministry in two ways. He says, don't lose heart in God's method. Of proclamation, that is. And I guess this applies to three groups. Of course, to the apostle himself. He was specifically called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus said to him in Acts 26, we read, I am sending you to open their eyes 
to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So it applies to Paul, but it also applies more widely to those called to vocational ministry, maybe akin to the co-workers that Paul identifies here in the plural we. But it also applies to all of us as Acts chapter 2 and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit demonstrates. And Colossians 3, which reminds us that we're all speakers and re-speakers of God's word to each other. Filled with the Spirit to proclaim this good news. Well, in Christ, we know we have this task. As Romans 10 reminds us, the word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. What a gift. What a calling. What a thing to be able to do as new covenant ministers, all of us in Christ. We are his church. We're the method. What a calling. And notice that Paul explains how proclaimers actually ought to proclaim as well. He puts a little bit of meat on it for us when in verse 2 he says, we are the ones who we don't meddle with it. He's already said we're not peddlers of it. We don't do it for profit. But he says we don't distort it. We don't fish bait it. No, we set forth the truth plainly. We say it clearly. Verse 5, Paul calls it preaching. But that's basically a word that just means heralding. Heralding good news. Whether you're in a pulpit with a congregation or in a play park with some other mums, it's heralding good news. And character always counts. You do it with a good conscience. You do it with integrity in a way, actually, that commends your person, who you are, not just what you say, but who you are to these people, to their own conscience, to their own judgment, so that they can say, there's nothing dodgy about this person's motive in wanting me to believe what they preach. Not like the false teachers. But we don't just do it in the... In their, in, with everyone else's conscience in mind, we do it in the sight of God. All of the Christian life is to be lived before the face of God. The proclamation of the gospel is no different. The inference hinted at is that if you do it for dodgy reasons, God who sees doesn't like what he sees and says there will be judgment. But don't lose heart in God's method. Proclamation is what he prescribes, so don't lose confidence in it. And don't lose heart in the message either, because the gospel is powerful to save. Paul points out exactly what this message is about in verse 5, doesn't he? You know, unlike the false teachers who like to preach themselves or talk each other up in glowing terms, Paul says what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We proclaim his death, his lordship defined, his resurrection, his lordship declared, his ascension, his lordship confirmed, his church, his lordship loved, his mission, his lordship spreading, his coming, his lordship exalted forever. We proclaim Jesus, the Lord who saves, Christ, the King of kings, as Lord, truly 
Lord of Lords. Oh, and Paul adds, and we are merely servants for your sake. Everything we do, we do it for you. And actually, it's for him. And here's why we don't lose heart. Through the simple method of proclaiming the glorious message of the gospel, God works powerfully to save and to sanctify, to rescue and to change. How powerfully does he work? Doesn't seem that impressive. Convince me, Paul, how powerfully does God work to do these things? Well, to answer that, Paul takes us back to creation to show us how powerfully he works through the weak, through our weak and seemingly unimpressive ministry. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. The same God who simply spoke words to bring light into existence is the same God who works powerfully through our words to pour light into darkened lives and to remove the veil that blinds to help people see, to help people change as they gaze on the glorious Jesus Christ, and call him Lord. Wow. Stunning. So do you find proclaiming God's word hard? Does it make us reluctant to talk about Jesus? Does it make us reluctant to talk, to say the things that could be said? Don't hold back, friends. Be bold. This ministry helps people see Jesus and helps people change into the likeness of Jesus. You find proclaiming God's word hard, disheartening to see little fruit, tempted to change tactics, maybe even give up. Don't lose heart. Proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord because we are the method God employs to spread his glory across the earth. And because through this ministry, God's light shines with saving and sanctifying effect in people's lives. So since God, in his kindness and his mercy, has removed the veil, shone his light into our hearts to make it possible, even for people like us, to contemplate the Lord's glory, let us turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. Let's pray together, and then we'll sing. Please take a moment in the quietness just to reflect on something that has struck you. Maybe it's a prayer for help. Maybe it's a prayer of adoration. Take time to pray.